This is Revisioning Religion, a conversational podcast on the crossroads of religion, mysticism and politics. Hi there, I'm Jonas Atlas. I'm a pankademic theologian and the author of several books on religion and spirituality. I've got a long history in both local and international interfaith dialogue, and I've done quite some research about the place of religion in our contemporary society. In all of this, I've always had a specific interest for religious phenomena on the mystical as well as the political margins of various traditions. As such, I thought it might be a good idea to venture into my own podcast series with dialogues about some of the topics that have intrigued me for many years. So here's the very first episode of Revisioning Religion. And I'm quite pleased to introduce my first guest, who's one of the most influential Muslim theologians in the world. Hi, I'm Abdul Hakim Murad, also known as Tim Winter, and I'm the Dean of the Cambridge Muslim College in England. Professor Murad, you've recently published your latest book, Travelling Home, Essays on Islam in Europe. Once again, it's a very inspiring read that makes the reader reflect on many pressing issues like Islamophobia, the ecological crisis and the place of religion in a supposedly secular world. I'm sure it will offer many Muslims a solid theological basis that allows them to rethink the relationship between Islam and contemporary Europe. And as always, you succeed in offering unexpected approaches on these issues and offer some pathways out of the typical dynamics of pure action versus reaction. Needless to say then, I find it a highly recommendable read. In fact, there are so many elements in your book worth reflecting upon that sadly enough we won't be able to discuss them all in this conversation. But I'm very happy you took the time to have this dialogue so we can at least go deeper into some particular themes. For example, I'd love to talk to you about your distinction between good anger and bad anger and your criticism of certain forms of what you call Tanfiri Islam. But before we get to those, let us perhaps start from the concept of Lahabism. I suppose it's a neologism that you came up with yourself, but it's one of the core concepts in your book, because you're a bit wary of the term Islamophobia, which perhaps might surprise some people since you've been addressing Islamophobic tendencies for many years now. But in your book, you say it might be better to speak of Lahabism. So before we get really into the topic, can you just explain for the listeners of the podcast um, what Lahabism is for you and why you stress it more than you stress Islamophobia? Sure. Well, I guess what I'm grappling with is uh, a way of uh, indigenizing the current Islamic attempt to make sense of the uh, apparently growing pandemic, if you will, of uh, anti-Muslim feeling, uh, not just in uh, in Europe, but also in America, in India, Myanmar, China. It's a kind of global pandemic, I suppose. Uh, clearly, it will have uh, specific features in each of those places which are linked to local minority dynamics, uh, anxieties about immigration and also local histories. Uh, the history of Islam in Russia is quite different from the history of Islam in England, for instance, in Russia. Islam arrived before Christianity did, which makes the whole outsider-insider equation rather different. Um, but I'm looking essentially at the Western European tension. Uh, and this term has almost been foisted upon us, I think. I doubt that it is of uh, sort of Islamic indigenous origin. And it seems to propose a straightforward analogy with other prejudices, um, which I think uh, religious communities generally should seek to avoid, because the kind of reaction which any new reformist religious movement uh, produces, and you know, Christianity in its early days produced a vehement reaction, so did Buddhism, it almost as the nature of a prophet to be a stranger in his own country, cannot, it seems to me, be straightforwardly equated to the kind of phobias about racism, sexual orientation, and the other things that this word is being in a proliferating, I think rather careless way being applied to in, in, in the Western discourse. 
So I uh, scoured around, and partly because I had the remains of a classical education, I'm not really happy with the attempt to kind of force marry um, an Arabic word with a Greek word. Um, it rubs me up the wrong way, although it seems to be universal nowadays, but to rummage in the Islamic internal library to see what one might find uh, anti-Muslim chauvinism, uh, not uh, reasoned criticism based perhaps on misperceptions or a different sense of what religion and humanity ought to be, something which should always be allowed and which I think religion can often benefit from, but a kind of nasty prejudice, a kind of uh, generic knee-jerk reflex. And I don't really think that the phobia idea is the most appropriate lexical range here, because phobia is from Greek phobos, which means fear. Clearly, there is fear of the other, fear of difference, um, fear of being overwhelmed demographically. Those fears are involved. But uh, I think also uh, the, the prejudice against religious difference is not generally based on fear so much as on a kind of uh, arrogance and a kind of scathing uh, insistence that one's own narrative monopolizes truth. And so in the early days of Islam, um, there was uh, a whole range of anti-heroes who opposed the Holy Prophet and his ministry. There's Abu Jahl and Abu Sufyan and Umayyah bin Khalaf. And Abu Lahab is the one who is immortalized, if you like, in, in the Quran, uh, because there's a short surah at the end of the Quran, which all Muslims memorize, which is about his wife, who was a particularly sort of hostile and prejudiced individual. And Abu Lahab, her husband, conspired on many occasions actually to assassinate or to torture, to persecute the early believers in their times of frailty. Uh, and so it seemed to me that if we uh, tweezed out that name from the uh, founding narrative of Islam, we have something more uh, authentic uh, that doesn't just assume that we are in a standard raft of phobias and somehow we're all in some kind of single social justice war and we should all be interchangeable, but rather recognizes the, the particularity of anti-religious and anti-Islamic uh, prejudice. And uh, we shall see if it catches on. I rather suspect that it won't, um, because unfortunately, religionists have their vocabulary defined for them. It's like this word jihadi or jihadism, which doesn't make any sense really in Islam, but which everybody now uses because the media insist on it and are indifferent to how Islam itself understands these phenomena. Um, and so uh, uh, it's something that I like to use. And actually, I find moving outside the standard often very loaded terminology that we're all working with in this fraught space uh, actually helps one to decompress emotionally and see things uh, in a new and fresh way. And I've done this with various other terms that I've come up with in the book uh, in order to get, get out of the kind of logjam of uh, the current sort of horn-to-horn -horn debates and to see things fresh. Um, so, of course, the risk is that nobody will understand the book if they pick it up and read it from the middle. They will have no idea what I'm talking about. But uh, I think it's worth taking that risk. I think religious communities should be proactive in defining the debates around them rather than accepting their framing by a secular and almost by definition uncomprehending media world. Yeah, I fully agree. I agree. It does make sense that the ones being um, targeted, then they get to claim or get to use the words they seem most appropriate to their situations. Uh, but on the other hand, I was thinking if we take Lahabism as a starting point and not so much the, the phobia, I was wondering whether Abu Lahab, you could also see him as a, a timeless example of tribalism on the one hand and then let's say that the prophet was in a certain sense the cosmopolitanism of his time and i mean by that that he tried to overcome the tribal ethics and try to emphasize a more universally applicable ethics like most prophets would do could we place it within that dichotomy as well or do you think there's a nuance there and that it's not completely the same there's something more specific about lahabism the way you approach it well obviously history doesn't repeat itself and what we're seeing in western europe at the moment is not a straightforward recrudescence of what the early muslims are up against in a 
Arabian desert town in, in the seventh century. However, insofar as the prejudices that were directed against the embryonic Muslim community were based not so much on ideas and on respectful debate, but on a sense that uh, tribal and ethnic solidarities were being challenged. I think there is uh, a useful analogy that can be drawn. Uh, famously, Islam and I guess uh, other universal axial religions as well see themselves as championing truth and universal ethics over and above the idea of my tribe, my country, right or wrong. Um, it's a bit like some of those um, heroic Catholic priests who tried to break up um, mafia brotherhoods in the 1930s, the 1940s. Um, they could break that logjam of tit-for-tat vendettas, which had been going back in some cases for hundreds of years, by referring to a higher truth that supposedly everybody would, would recognize. And I think that's one of the gifts of monotheism historically, is that it can help people to um, move out of human ten the human tendency to break up into gangs, whether it be football supporters or political parties or uh, entities which claim are visceral allegiance but may or may not be based on any kind of higher truth or, or ideal. Uh, and clearly with the rise of Islam one's seeing a paradigmatic case of that because Arabia before Islam was defined entirely by the tribal um, patchwork of different rivalries and alliances with no overarching law. And then when the Holy Prophet left us, Arabia was effectively united and it was unity under God. So uh, to the extent that what we're seeing now in these petty nationalisms in Western Europe or with the kind of Trumpian American hypertrophic self-identification as white, Christian, good, the city on the hill, um, or with the Chinese idea that a certain Han Chinese heritage is the only way of legitimately claiming sort of proper membership of the, the, the Chinese people and India as well, even more strangely that they've created an ideology out of such an enormously wide ranging and rich diversity of different orientations, uh, that uh, we're seeing a kind of recrudescence of something that was not just uh, the curse of 7th century Arabia, but is part of human nature. Uh, it's kind of teenage culture, we form gangs, so we get together with people who look out for us. We do it in prisons, we do it in situations of, of pressure. Uh, clearly, it's right and proper to have pride in one's family, place, lineage, uh, and Islam doesn't abolish that any more than other religions do. Uh, but to treat that as something that can uh, leapfrog over ethics, and a due listening to one's neighbor um, is precisely the jahiliya which the Holy Prophet comes against. Uh, so there is something archetypal and sort of operatic about the rise of Islam. It's like one of the big Wagner operas where every person and every theme tune represents a particular strength or weakness in the human psyche and it becomes a kind of collision of, of archetypes. Um, and uh, that's the way in which the biblical stories are um, understood um, in the, the Quranic text as clashes of archetypes and that's certainly how Muslims see the rise of Islam. Tribalism, paganism, injustice, hierarchy against this radical leveling new force of, of Abrahamic monotheism. So in that sense that, that history is being repeated in modern Europe. We are finding people who say I am Dutch, I'm Flemish, I'm German and I may not actually have a very good personal connection with that in the way I dress and the literature I consume, but it's it's something that, that makes me want to salute. Uh, and because these interlopers, not just Muslim migrants, but other outsiders, Jews historically, travellers, Roma, communities like that, are perceived uh, not just as an interesting sign of difference, but as a challenge to my own sense of the unique rightness of my own tribe. Uh, so in that sense, I think there is a, a, a genuine continuity between uh, the fight between Tawhid and Jahiliya 14 centuries ago and the kind of uh, uh, reactive knee-jerk pseudo-patriotism that we're seeing um, uh, not just on the right, but in many areas of the political spectrum in Western Europe today. I specifically asked you about this, and because I, I also feel this archetypal unfolding of the world, uh, uh, the way archetypes represent themselves in certain contexts and, and in history. And I ask you about it because one of the interesting things for me, I've always found your work inspiring. We've met a couple of years ago, I've interviewed you before, and theologically speaking, I'm 
I'm, I'm completely in line with your thinking and so on. But I know you're a bit more on the political side, on the conservative side. I tend more to the, well, I really tend more to progressive um, ideas when it comes to politics. And for me, that's interesting because when you talk about the archetype of tribalism and how monotheism is supposed to overcome it in a more universal sense and uh, universal ethics... The thing is that for me, the tribalism is something that belongs more to the conservative um, groups in society. And I'll make it a bit more concrete what I mean, because one of your proposals, I think in the first or the second chapter, is that Muslims, uh, because they have a, a tendency to... Um, or let's say that mainstream Islam, many Muslims have a more conservative outlook when it comes to uh, above all uh, gender issues and and so on, which are not completely in line with typical modernist secular ideas about um, uh, how to construct the individual and the relationships with family and so on, that there might be a more natural tendency to create allies or to find allies with more, let's say, conservative Christians and so on. And that for me was an interesting one because... I get the idea, yes, in a, let's say, mainstream standard uh, secular outlook on the world. It might be tolerant, but it, it has this issue with religion. It has this four or five hundred year old issue with religion. And so it, it can kind of tolerate Muslims up to a certain extent, but it, it has a problem with the religiousness of it and with certain conservative values that might come along with the religiousness. Um, so there, there might be a sense in creating allies with other marginalized conservative uh, religious groups. But on the other hand, me being a Christian, progressive Christian, and having done all the interfaith work that I have, and also knowing the Christian, let's say the Flemish Belgian, where I'm from, the Belgian Christian groups. Well, when you go to the more the more conservative you go into those groups, the the, the more anti-Muslim, the more Lahabist basically they become, and their Christianity falls away and becomes this nationalist slash focus on we the group it has a bit of a white supremacy there it has a denial of colonialism and it has this islamophobic tendency so and you write the whole chapter about bosnia which is a perfect example of how conservative christianity certainly when fused with with nationalism brings about this this very islamophobic or lobbyist uh, tendency so why still find the allies between conservatives? Because conservatism has this tendency to, to kind of regress to the tribal, in my view. Yes, I would see that as being uh, one possibility of the right in Europe, but not necessarily where religious conservatism wants to go. One of the things that I've encountered most counterintuitively, perhaps, in my wanderings uh, amongst uh, interfaith environments is that uh, where fairly old-fashioned Muslims are confronted very often for the first time with really orthodox Jewish people, traditional Catholics, to some extent, despite their often wild nationalism, uh, the orthodox of the East, there is a deeper and more immediate recognition uh, than if one is engaging just with the latest sort of Methodist, liberal, female minister who's into Palestine, but really doesn't really seem to have much of a deep religious life. Um, for instance, one of the interesting encounters that one can see regularly at uh, British Muslim gatherings, at the larger ones, is that the uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish group, the Natura Karta, usually come and have a stall and they just stand there with the whole gear, with the hat and the ringlets and the spats, and they look as if they don't belong. But for them, it's a matter of witness because they're pro-Palestinian and anti-Zionist. They take that to be the, the authentic form of Judaism. And a lot of Muslims kind of take a step back and think, oh, there's the enemy. But actually, once they get into a conversation with them, there's a kind of very strange sense of immediate recognition that there are so many values in common and the centrality of prayer and stillness is something that, that Muslims often really like 
to encounter with them. And uh, I found this also with my last two papal encounters, superficial though they were, that even though Pope Benedict had been associated with the Regensburg Address and that global catastrophe that ensued, uh, when I met him with uh, uh, Ayatollah, uh, Miss Bahi Yazdi was there and some pretty old school Azharis. Uh, he was really interested in us and wanted to see beyond the surface to see, well, what does he think about this question and that question? And there's a certain way in which people who are focused on God have uh, a kind of radar that recognizes other people who also have a life of prayer. So actually, despite everything, we really got on with Pope Benedict and the Ayatollahs really liked him and he was interested to see you know, this, this religious other. He came across very well. Um, when when we met uh, his successor, Francis, it was kind of on the surface and interfaith sort of politeness. And I think his aides had been told had, had told him not to get into any substantive issues because it's such a minefield. And that's been a fairly consistent um, paradox. Uh, and it's unfortunate because usually, as you say, it's those very orthodox people who tend to be quite insular. Uh, but then once you get past the initial reflexes, uh, there is a, a remarkable sense of, of recognition, which I've had with many of them, including Greek uh, priests, um, with um, Polish Catholic nationalists. Uh, once you get past the kind of flashpoint issues, there is a sense that one is in the, the space occupied by people who in a comparable way feel challenged and persecuted by modernity, which I've never felt with people of a more liberal persuasion for whom Everything is, let's get on the liberal bandwagon and have a world in which we're all equal and we can have all of these liberal social forms and we can hug each other forever. But there's no real deep spiritual engagement. One of your main themes in your books uh, that you discuss is this is the age of Tanfir. The Tanfir which... Um, kind of amplifies the Islamophobia where, let's say, uh, the modernist Western side, whatever you want to call it, um, says, you're Muslims, you're bad because of gender, because of this, because of that. And then the reaction becomes um, a, a type of what you call Tanfiri Islam. But, but again, please explain for the podcast listeners what you mean, because I think it's a crucial concept and it certainly helped me to think about a lot of things. Yeah, this is another of my semantic attempts to dodge the very emotive consequences of using certain used or overused words. Um, in this case, the word extremism or radicalism, which again is something that's been to some extent imposed on the discourse from outside with analogies to phenomena in European history that may not be very good analogies. And of course, it's very relativistic because one man's extremist is another man's moderate. Um, it's, it's entirely perspectival. And the same goes with radical. So um, dodging those terms, I've there are indigenous Islamic terms which are almost in the same area, such as hulu, for instance, which I don't really use, which is a Quranic term meaning to go to excess. Uh, and uh, a religious extremist, a militant extremist in classical Islamic civilization was usually classified as one of the hulat, so the Kharijites and other early movements um, who killed people who didn't agree with them were hulat. Uh, but again, I find that to be potentially a bit relativistic. So the neo-Kharijites of today would say, we're actually the mainstream Muslims and everybody else is extreme because they're going with the American agenda or they're distorting the Quran. And it doesn't actually help you to win any arguments. So uh, I reached for something else, which is a category which is present in the Hadith about uh, repulsion. The famous sound Hadith says, Bashiru wala tunafiru, yassiru wala tu'asiru which means give people good news, do not repel them, make things easy for them, do not make them difficult. And this is part of a whole range of prophetic um, advice to people not to be too intense in the religion. There's a famous hadith in which he says people, some people go into religion so hard that they come out the other side like an arrow passing through its target. In other words, they're doing it with such intensity that they end up being kind of horrible people 
to whom for whose hearts prayer and the other things seem to have made no difference whatsoever they become hard-hearted rather than soft-hearted so the founder of the religion himself warns us against this and knows that it's going to be a possibility just as it was a possibility in christian history jewish history and so forth it's a human error to assume that the narrower you are the more authentic you must be now, religion doesn't recognize that equation, but the human ego often does. So if you if you have your back against a wall, a wall, you feel oppressed, you feel marginalized, you feel resentful. Sometimes the type of religion or identity that you reach for is the one that seems to be harshest and most narrow in order to wave a fist of defiance in the face of your oppressor. And this is what a lot of modern religious reactivism, I think, is about. Um, a lot of the modern American religious right, I think, is a kind of vehement response to the liberal hegemony and the, the contempt that's directed against um, a lot of evangelicals in, in American culture. Uh, and so it is in the Islamic world where religion has been so driven into a corner by a lot of the, the regimes where there have been so many outrages, uh, the loss of Palestine, the destruction of Iraq, the destruction of Libya, etc., etc., that some people really have lost it, and any kind of decent uh, dialogical form of religion just doesn't speak to their hearts. They're just furious, uh, and they want to exact revenge, and even if that's only discursive, they shout from the pulpit because they've lost it. So uh, that I identify as being what the Hadith is warning us against. Don't repel people. The worst thing you can do is instead of presenting religion to them as a healing and as a solution, to make it look like just another of the headaches out there in the world. And this is a problem. A lot of, a lot of Hindus are very disillusioned now because of what Modi is doing. It's not, you know, they thought Hinduism was the kind of nice guru and vegetarian and yoga, and now it's become this chauvinistic nationalism and it, it hurts them. And they're taking a step back. Since Modi came to power, we've had a spike in Hindus converting to Islam in the UK. So uh, religions need to be wise to this. And I think historically they have been, which is why the saints always try and make things easy for everybody. But it's become an epidemic in the Islamic world. The fact that some Gulf states have uh, supported the theology which underpins it has certainly not helped. There hasn't been a core Muslim state to support traditional Islam, only fundamentalism. And the Saudi-Iranian rivalry has uh, treated the rest of the Islamic world as a kind of battleground for those frustrations. And neither of those understandings, the Saudi understanding, the Iranian understanding, is remotely useful to Muslims trying to survive in a difficult Western situation. So yeah, it's it's a very unpromising situation. Uh, but of course, as religionists, one has hope. And eventually, these people will recognize that it's self-defeating to be so intensely religious that nobody else wants to be religious in the end. And parts of northern Syria now are like Europe used to feel after Auschwitz. People have seen so much horror that they're just kind of floppy and they don't know what to do. It's this kind of gelas and height, just let it be, who cares, who knows, we're shaking. Uh, and I think you know, Algeria is coming out of that. They had it first, I think. Um, but it's going to be a very painful cycle for not just Islam, but for Hinduism and other religions to go through. To learn this principle that the religious founders told us in the first place, which is that, uh, as the Hadith says, this religion is something strong, go into it gently. And so that, that chapter in the book is basically a list of hadiths about how we need to be authentic through gentleness and circumspection rather than through shouting and, and brandishing a fist. Uh, but for a lot of furious young people, especially those oppressed, objectively, discursively oppressed in the ghettos of Western Europe, that doesn't seem like a very attractive or satisfying uh, piece of advice. I really like your concept there of the repelling forms of religion only do more harm, even even within your own logic of uh, Tanfiri Muslim. What, you, what you'd like is that everybody becomes Muslim, but the way you present Islam only repels people. Yeah. And so... Mm -hmm. Um, the, the the opposite side is like you say the kindness, the mercy of the prophets, the the beauty of the prophets, and 
the biography it's years ago i read the biography of martin links and of course for me being mm -hmm. grown up as a as a belgian western uh, christian it, it was a kind of a uh, surprise to me to see how Muslims perceive the the prophet because the the century old islamophobic image of the prophet is something else but what strike uh, what was most striking to me was indeed the kindness the mildness the the uh, emphasis on rahman and and on uh, compassion and so on uh, which is which is forefront in the way that the islamic tradition yeah. tells about mm -hmm. the prophet And so what, wonder, what, what, it makes me wonder how come the Tanfiri Muslims, they pick up original biographies of the Prophet as well, I would, would suppose. How can they be so blind to that whole side, which is humongous in the Islamic tradition? Is it simply the anger, the resentment, which makes their eyes go red and blind? Or is there something else there? I think it's partly due to the fact that the regimes which have often sought to nationalize Islam and create carefully controlled religious hierarchies with state sermons have emphasized the element of Islamic moderation, gentleness, compassion so much for their own often cynical political reasons that that discourse has been seen as uh, a cynical and discredited one by a lot of young Muslims. Uh, but sometimes it is, as you say, that there's just so furious by Know, the hopelessness of their situation. If you're in Gaza, for instance, and the Egyptians now have locked the border and you can't get out by sea and the West seems to be profoundly uninterested and it's the most crowded place on earth, uh, you know, why shouldn't you adopt an absolutely outrageously extreme view if it helps you to feel a little bit better and helps you to demonize your enemies? We tend to underestimate the extremeness of the situation in which some refugees and other communities find themselves, especially people like the Palestinians who've been in exile for 70 years now, uh, with the situation continuing to get worse and with no end to that insight. Um, if, it, if the West no longer cares how they are, they can all be angels in Gaza, but they're never going to go back to their homes, then why not lob a few bombs over the fence and at least you're doing something. So I think desperation, which of course is one of the mortal sins, uh, has something to do with this, that there's just a despair, that the global inequalities, that the Western liberal hegemon is so absolute and regards Islam as the paradigm of the dark other, is so unshakable and enshrined in news reports, in Hollywood, in every novel, that uh, a gentle pushing back with something better, as the Quran puts it, it's just not going to work. The Western liberal heart is too closed and will not budge. Um, and so, well, why not just express your anger and blow yourself up? There's nothing else on the horizon. I agree, I agree. The resentment might be a sin, but it's a very understandable considering the circumstances and the reality of life. But that brings me to another question about the fact that um, every type of activism should start from a deep inherent mildness and so on. And that's also why why that part of your book really uh, inspired me because I'm I'm also very involved in different types of activism. And it's everybody who is involved in certain types of activism or trying to right the wrongs, which are the daily reality in, in life, knows how difficult it is to keep the right balance between, on the, on the one hand, mildness and, and having this uh, healing character that might solve the problems, and on the other side, simply speaking truth to power, because it also has to happen. And once you do that, you, you get those reactions of those in power, mm -hmm. uh, which, which tend to create this vicious circle where it's uh, hard against the heart. So I guess I'm, I'm looking for what would be your spiritual advice to keeping the balance between mildness on the one hand, which has to happen, and speaking true to power, because you can't brush the the immense injustices that we can see every day. We, we can't just brush them under the carpet. So it has to happen as well. What's your view on, on keeping well, the balance? Uh, it's in all of our traditions, uh, one of the uh, lifestyle options of the saints that they maintain 
this uh, rigorous sternness with themselves in their devotional and moral lives and a gentleness with the weak and a prophetic attitude towards the powerful. One of my favorite figures in Islamic history is uh, Sidi Lassin Lusi, all the Moroccans love him, maybe in Belgium they still have heard of him, the fundamentalists I expect don't like him, but 400 years ago he was this famous Berber saint who was famous for healing animals, loving the poor and so forth. Uh, and the Sultan of the time, who was engaged in building the walls of the city of Meknes uh, and basically enslaved the population in order to do this, and many of them were dying in the process and their bodies just being thrown into the wall and immured, invited him um, to dinner at the palace. And he tried to get out of it, but in the end he couldn't. And he sits down at the Sultan's sort of palatial table and uh, he picks up the crockery and he smashes it on the table. All of these beautiful plates, one after the other, the saint is just smashing them. And the Sultan says, Sheikh, this is extremely bad manners for a guest. Why are you smashing my plates? And he says, well, I'm just smashing clay that's made out of clay. And you are smashing the human clay that God himself made. And because of everybody's love for him and the fact of his total sincerity and fearlessness, he was allowed to go his way. But um, from the foundation of the religions themselves, uh, the prophetic voice which speaks against um, voices of power has risked itself. Uh, and I think that um, in our kind of hyper-liberal, individualistic, rather inhuman world where so many people are alone suffering from depression and where the official individualism and narcissism of the governing discourse is causing enormous suffering, that we need to risk ourselves and speak out against certain things, even if it means that we get cancelled and silenced and Twitter stormed. Um, I think we just have to treat that as almost a sign of authenticity mm. rather than being kind of placid liberal state clerics who um, prevaricate when anything controversial is mentioned. The point of religion is to try and point to a better world. If Palestine is outrageous, one should point that out. If extremism, whatever is outrageous, global warming, one should speak frankly. So the, uh, the real sermon is the one that pulls no punches and the one that prevaricates and begins with a however um, is the one that will not feel the mosque or the church with young people. And that's a problem with a lot of religion that it's become so establishment and so anxious to please everybody that nobody bothers any longer. But religion is prophetic or is nothing. And that, of course, relates to your division between good anger and bad anger. I found it an absolutely brilliant chapter in your book. Um, I've got two questions about it, but maybe first the same thing. Just explain what your difference is between good anger and bad anger for the listeners of the podcast, and then we can I can ask my uh, deepening questions. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we very often become angry, and because of our lack of self-awareness, we tend not to have a good conversation with ourselves about its legitimacy. Um Many of the Eastern traditions, such as Buddhism, uh, in many of its forms, seek to overcome all emotions so that we exist in a state of kind of virtuous indifference and nirvana, the arahat, is not subject to the turbulences of the self because the self is, has been shown to be an illusion. Some Western philosophy, such as the Stoics, also try to overcome emotion. But the moral greatness of the monotheisms is predicated on the very fine balance that has to exist between the legitimation of the full palette of human emotions, which is part of the way in which God created um, human beings, and the fact that God himself is represented in Bible and Quran as having something that seems to be analogous to an emotional response to some things that happens. He's pleased with us sometimes, he's angry with us sometimes. So there's a basis for this in divinis, and we are in God's image. So I think that's part of the greatness of monotheism, that it opens us up to the full inhabiting of our humanity rather than trying to turn us into some abstract um, spiritual nothing. But of course, with that go many dangers. Uh, the great ones and the prophets, uh, Jesus in the Gospels, are sometimes angry. He overturns the tables and chases out the money changers. And if you look at El Greco's picture of that, it's it's an interesting struggle for him. 
because the face of Christ can't really be very emotional according to his counter-reformation, very high Christology. So you've got this very violent scene and the El Greco limbs kind of twisting and elongated. It's a great picture. It's in the National Gallery in London. But in the middle of this, you've got the face of Christ, which is kind of neutral. <laughs> um, that's a paradox which he's trying to make a virtue out of. I think in the Islamic context, uh, probably the Jewish context as well, a lot of Christian ethics, there is uh, a way in which the full range of human emotion can legitimately be occupied as part of our creative nature, but has to be purified so that we get to God, as the Sufis say, by going through the world rather than going around it. Uh, but most of the time when we become angry, we become angry because our own pride has been bruised, or what we take to be our rights have been infringed, so we're angry for ourselves. That is what the monotheisms are against. If somebody steps on your toe, don't get angry. What's the point? If somebody cheats you of your inheritance, if it, you're the one who loses, maybe do something about it, but don't get angry. If somebody else is abused, well, then you have the right to be angry. So the Hadith say that the Holy Prophet would grow angry, but never for himself. Uh, if he himself was infringed or um, mistreated, he would be forgiving. When somebody else's rights were violated, he would grow angry. So, And that speaks to our own human intuition that it's inhuman not to be angry about inequality, poverty, global warming. We can't just sit back and meditate when we see these things. Anger is a legitimate response. It's a prophetic response. But how do we differentiate between the anger that is of the spirit and the anger that's of the ego? And that requires spiritual discernment. It requires the external hand of a guide. It requires possibly maturation through human experience, because very often our anger leads us into situations that we can see were not good for us, into a bad divorce or into a bad financial transaction or into sacking somebody who is actually good for us. Anger gets us into a lot of trouble. So it's in our interest to, to overcome it and to uh, recognize it. Um, but uh, it shouldn't be uh, vanquished altogether. So yeah, it, it's a very subtle thing. And my teachers used to say that the rarest of all human emotions is anger for the sake of God really to be angry because God's glory and his servants have been violated. Usually when we're angry, even if we think it's for an ethical cause, it's because of something, some wrinkle in our ego. And anger for God is really unusual. And that's the problem with a lot of modern ten theories, if you like, that actually they themselves they feel humiliated, marginalized, despised, and they get angry and they think we're angry for God. In many cases it isn't, and that's why they engage in things that drive the world away from religion. But I think it's something that we have to think about, given the fact that everybody nowadays is really angry. The media is angry, the politicians are angry, we're angry with the politicians, we're angry with the virus, we're angry with a world exploding with anger. Uh, I think religion should uh, be proactive in reminding people that we need to think about this and self-diagnose and be a little less proud about ourselves and make sure that we're only angry um, in ways that are going to bring about human flourishing rather than mutual destruction. One of the aspects that's connected to this and that you also bring up in the book is that one of the ways that you can do the discernment of or the spiritual discernment of whether you what you feel is good anger or bad anger is by looking at yourself and finding out whether you think that you're the owner of history and that you have to solve things or whether in the end your fate is still of that level that you know that it eventually God is the creator and the sustainer and, and the mover in history, mm -hmm. that he's the yeah. real cause of everything. And I completely agree there that that's, that's a way of discerning whether it's your ego taking over and thinking that if I do this, then the world will be better, or whether you're in accordance with God's tears and whether you're trying to go his way, submitting to his will and the way he will eventually uh, bring the balance and order to the world. But one of the possible reactions one might have is if you can do that, 
doesn't that mean that you can just simply give everything over to God? So there's a, a possible trap of fatalism there. And you you say in the book, no, I'm not talking about fatalism, but I had the feeling you kind of stated it matter-of-factly. So how do you make sure that putting your trust on God above your ego anger to discern between good and bad anger doesn't lead us into some sort of fatalism where you say, oh, well, it's not up to me in any case. It's God who's going to take care of everything. Yeah, I think that in a complex way, we act on two levels, uh, that there is a surface level where existentially we have to proceed on the assumption that cause and effect are real and that time and space are real. But at the deeper level, the awareness that for God in divinis things are really different and that everything is from God, goes back to him and that the divine omnipotence cannot be countermanded by any human force. So the serenity or the self-control that exists on the surface level, uh, I think, wells up from a deeper level of faith and the virtue that in Christianity is called resignation. <coughs> you accept God's will, uh, God's will be done, it's in the Lord's Prayer, and ultimately we return to the one who is supremely just. Every injustice will one day be righted. There's a profound of sanity that comes from that and one of the things we're seeing in this corona crisis is a sudden spike in um, mental health crises particularly amongst the young they've gone up three times in the uk according to the most recent uh, figures uh, but not for religious people and it seems across the religions uh, people with faith are dealing with this much better than people who think this is all there is and I can't go to parties and my grandmother died and things are really abrasive and, and, and horrible. And one of the things we've seen in this crisis is the benefit that faith gives to people, even if they're not really articulating it at the surface, they can't really feel that they can say, well, this is all God's will. Some might, um, but at the deeper level, they know that things are basically all right. There is a loving God who takes care of us, who is just, and that the system is not out of control. So that's how I would answer it, that at the, the deepest level of our soul, we have this certainty, everything is in God's hands, and therefore basically everything is rightness, appropriateness, compassion, mercy, justice. But on the surface, where we poor, limited humans have our conscious being, yeah, of course, the world is uh, kind of a pinball machine and we're bouncing around and it's it's fairly frantic. But the deep wisdom should enable us to remain sane while we're bouncing around in life from crisis to crisis. What's the connection between the two levels? Because I, I get what you're saying, but they need to be connected some way. And in a, I mean it in a psychological and existential sense. So what for you would be the the main connection between the two levels? Well, it's, it's remembering dhikr, which is not necessarily a conscious thing. I remember when I was uh, uh, teaching English at the British Council in Cairo, and I would invigilate exams with all of these young Egyptian students, and it was a big thing for them. They paid a lot, and it was stressful, writing against the clock. And then I noticed every 10 minutes or so, one of these people would just say, Allah. And you could see everybody kind of, the body language would change and they would relax because uh, they remembered the, this isn't the most important thing. So there's something that comes to the surface unbidden from a realm of the spirit that we are not really given to understand correctly, but which is a deeper part of what we are, which is more to do with the realm of imagination, of dreams, of direct communication with unseen worlds, which is beyond the reach of human language, really, which is where we really have our being. Uh, the, break surface like a volcano or a current of fresh air coming to the surface of something. Um, uh, but yeah, that's one of the mysteries of, of religion, that we have our theological chit-chat that tries to make everything very uh, clear-cut, but the reality of our experience of ourselves and of others and of the world, and even how we form our beliefs and choices is very deep down in us. Um, and that's not the Freudian uh, uh, answer, because Freud is saying what's deep down is low and base and visceral. 
to do with horrific primal traumas. We would say what's down there is is luminous um, and is what we truly are. But yeah, yours is a good question. How do we link the two? Uh, sometimes they're linked in visionary dreams. Sometimes they're linked in what we call religious experience, um, because the, the inner world is the being of the outer world in a certain sense. It's not some kind of private thing that we have locked away in our psyche and our memories. It's it's a connection to, to being itself with a capital B. And uh, to the extent that we're connected to being with a capital B, we're completely transformed by the sight of something beautiful in the world. Uh, it's the inward that somehow comes to the surface and gives us a sense of nostalgia for, for our true being. But the nature of that relationship you know, is uh, something that the great spiritual psychologists of our traditions have always wrestled with, because as they would always say, Eckhart and so forth, it's beyond the reach of language anyway, but sometimes a poem might point to it. There can be indications and flashes, but you can't put it into words. That brings me to the last question, um, because the search for this luminous essence has indeed been something that lots of people before us have been doing and trying to convey pathways to get there. But it kind of brings me to the question, because you you speak a lot about the lostness of today's modernist culture, and this was this one sentence with a, I found pretty succinctly and nicely put. It's a sad and stressed culture which enjoys an abundance of everything except the indispensable. So, okay, I, I fully agree. This is a good description of today's modern culture. But I, I was wondering how, because I, I also, in, in the things I write and so on, I have the tendency to talk about modernity as something specific and so on. And there's lots of specificities to it, but is it really different? Because... I happen to read the Masnavi for a couple of years now, every day, just uh, one or two pages. And you can just see how Rumi talks about how the majority of people is simply following their nafs and how they do not get to this luminous essence that we were just talking about. So is there really a difference if you look at what the saints have been saying? It's like... This has been going on for a very long time. It kind of brings us back to the beginning of our conversation. Mm -hmm. Aren't these just yeah. archetypes reoccurring again and again? They are, and of course human nature doesn't change or hasn't changed yet. Maybe the sort of, uh, scientific revolution will change the human subject, but essentially we're the same thing in our brains or what they were um, 50,000 years ago. But I think the proportions have changed, uh, that there was always a balance between people attracted upwards and people who just followed the impulses, and that balance has been disrupted, and the upward movement in society is really not understood or is um, deliberately... Uh, profaned, uh, but people being human beings have a craving for that. We are homo religiosus, and since they've been human beings, there have been a need for ritual, for collective practices, for sacrifice, for belief in something transcendent, for belief in something after death. Ours is the first civilization really not to have had that. You could say ancient Rome to some extent. Uh, did people take those deities seriously? But even in ancient Rome, there were thriving mystery cults and Mithraism, Christianity. It was a religious world, even if a lot of it seemed very exotic and occultish to us, but um, they did have beliefs. But in our world, you know, so we now have in England uh, a minister of loneliness. Hmm? That's where it's all leaving, leading. I don't know any other country in the world has one, but it's such a crisis, a medical crisis. So many people living alone uh, because of that absence. So, and you see the consequences of the loss of a sense of spirit and a sense of uh, wider responsibility. <clears throat> My uh, mother-in-law, for instance, aged Pakistani lady, is in charge of this huge household of cousins and great-grandchildren and she's like the the dowager empress she's in her 80s but everybody does exactly what she says um which is not really the feminist idea of how pakistani society works but really the older women have a lot of power in the sense that in the west they don't <clears throat> and then my next door neighbor a very privileged english lady dies and it is 10 weeks before anybody notices because she's alone and lonely. 
So this is something new, this radical fragmentation of human beings into solitary spaces and the enormous suffering that comes from that. I don't think Rumi was familiar with a society like that. It's something quite new and quite horrific, really. Um, it's a holocaust unfolding before our eyes. And I do see it as one of the consequences of the prioritising of rights over duty and of this world over the next world and the loss of those scriptural narratives and all the traditions that emphasise neighbourliness and family and sacrifice and duty. Uh, and yeah, people are hurting. So I don't think that it is just a replay of what happened in Konya in the 13th century. The modern West is in a very different place. And the spiralling rate of uh, mental illness is another sign of that. So the fact that uh, antidepressant prescriptions have doubled in the last 10 years in the UK, um, probably the same in Belgium. People are really hurting. We're not designed to be secular. Mm. Uh, even evolutionary psychologists will tell you that. Human beings, the brain is configured with a God gene of some kind that they don't understand. To have these practices and to have this belief in transcendence, even though it's been articulated in 10,000 different ways, it's, it's normal to what we are. So modernity is, by historical standards, abnormal. And I think we could probably say inhuman as well. Um, too, too many people are suffering and um, becoming lost and despairing. So, yeah, this is not this is not just a replay of the past. This is something new and unprecedented. And if it, if it is new... What's the newness that has to be brought in to bring back the luminous essence and the focus on a transcendent luminous essence? How do you do that if this is fundamentally new? I suppose you you need a new antidote as well, or is that the old recipes that will do the trick eventually? Well, insofar as the human craving for the spirit is unchanged because it's part of our metabolic makeup. It's just been suppressed or sublimated. The old remedies should work. The problem is that the institutions which used to supply that have now become quite banal and mediocre and socially marginal. You don't really go uh, to your Church of England vicar nowadays with these questions. You might go for mindfulness training or to a counsellor. But you won't go to the vicar, and the vicar probably is dealing with five or six different parishes and is rushed off his feet and doesn't have the time really to take you under his or her wing as a spiritual disciple. They, they can't do that. And also the public image of the church, I think in some ways, even worse than the image of Islam in the West, because it's perceived quite apart from the controversy over clerical abuse as something kind of stodgy and establishment and old-fashioned and just the churches as buildings really speak to an earlier generation don't speak to us uh, and i think that young people find that space and that discourse and the type of sermonizing that you hear particularly in the church of england something that they cannot get a handle on and can't relate to so i think that organized religion including islam needs to change its discourse and, and become a little bit less compromised and a little bit more alert to most superficially the issues that young people relate to, such as global warming, uh, needs to be higher on the agenda. And the kind of church-state synergy and uh, sort of St. Paul's royal wedding culture, where it just seems to be part of the theatre of a dusty establishment that young people can't recognise has to be, they have to move away from that somehow. Because if you actually take a young person and you show them the scriptures, say this is actually the essence of the Gospels, uh, they're usually amazed. They say, well, why didn't anybody tell me? I thought it was the boring old priest going on about Bible stories. This is weird. Because these figures are trans-historical. The life of the Buddha, the life of Muhammad, the life of Jesus are astounding. But we don't know. Um, it's also ignorance. People just don't think about religion. There's the story about uh, Winston Churchill when he was really old. Um, he read the Bible for the first time in his life. And he said, uh, this book is very well written. Why was it not brought to my attention before? <laughs> People do not know that story. They, it's not an alternative any longer because it's been censored out of the, the society. And that was you know, the early 1960s. Now it's a thousand times worse.
So ignorance has got a lot to do with it. The religions just need to present themselves, not reinvent themselves, but to present their, their timeless solutions. And they'll find that people respond maybe better than they ever did in the past because people are so spiritually starving. Thank you very much for this very interesting conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.